Hello there, my friend, and welcome to the Ayurveda and Psychology podcast. I am Charlotte Skogsberg, your host for this podcast. I am enchanted to meet and to take you with me on this journey into the human psyche, viewed from the holistic approach of yoga and Ayurveda, and viewed from the modern man approach of clinical psychology and psychoanalysis. So have something nice to drink next to you, maybe a cup of tea, have a seat, or go out for a nice walk in nature, maybe. Enjoy. In this episode that focuses on Ayurveda, I would like to talk to you about this misunderstanding that lies basically as the base for most of our compensatory strategies and most of our detrimental behaviors, let's say. And that misunderstanding is that we need to modify a little bit how we are and how we function in order to perform. Whereas the one thing that we don't seem to be able to trust is that we are not an exception to the rule. We are not different to any other living thing on this earth that plays by the rules of nature or by the law of nature, if you will. And this is something that is so hardwired in us, which is why it's so difficult to change it. So let me take the example of just a morning habitual routine of someone who is not necessarily very much in tune with nature. All right. Very commonly, the person has gone to bed far too late, which means that they're waking up and getting out of bed somewhere past, let's say, 7 or 8 a.m. Then as they're getting out of bed, they're probably feeling as well a little bit groggy or tired. And so quite soon after getting out of bed, they will prepare their morning coffee. right? And then they will have their morning coffee and they will sit and scroll like many of us do on their phones for social media information. And they might even while they're doing this, begin to plan ahead things that they know that they need to do, so tend to emails or other things of the day. They'll probably have another coffee if they need to, especially if they're feeling a little bit weak and tired and heavy, and then they rush off to work, right? Okay, so a lot of people think, all right, I need to be at work at nine, let's say, and so... I have a 20-minute commute to get there, which means that, well, yeah, if I get up around 8, it's fine. I have the time to have my coffee, sit down for a little bit, scrolling on my phone, have a shower, and more or less be ready and get to work. Which means that it's quite common as well that we stress a little bit when we're on our way to work because we're kind of um, running against time, right? And then we get to work. And now I'm going to go extreme because I think that that's not that extreme, but it's extreme for me now. But I definitely remember a time when it wasn't so extreme. Getting to work, having had maybe two coffees before that, 
um, might even have put some sugar in that or not, will though at some point around 10 a.m. begin to notice a decrease of energy levels. And it's rather common in some countries anyway that there will be some kind of common area at work, right? Where people go and get more coffee and then, you know, someone's put out some baked stuff or there's a vending machine or, you know, there's just something and that will attract your attention and it's around 10, 10, 10.30 maybe and the person's starting to get quite hungry, feeling, feeling really low on energy and so refills with something, which means that they've gotten a bit of a kick there. They might have another coffee or something else or some kind of those vending machines uh, type of coffees that's just basically full of sugar. And by the time they get to lunchtime, somewhere maybe between 12 and 1, they are maybe a little bit hungry, maybe not because of the extra intake they had around 10, 10, 30. So they will feel as if they need to have a light meal. Maybe they'll have a salad. Maybe they even, I remember back in my days, many years ago, of course, when I would go up to kind of the mall and there were these um, kiosks, basically, you go and you buy takeaway and that would be in some kind of plastic rounded shaped bowl and they put all these kind of things in to make it into a salad and then I would bring it back to my office and I would basically sit in my office eating that while I'm continuing working and um, wouldn't be surprised if there's not you know someone else out there thinking well that's kind of what I do as well. Naturally continuing working in the afternoon there might be a dip there somewhere between two three towards four o'clock a dip in energy and you might feel maybe not hungry, but you might feel hungry or a little bit peckish or this person might just need something warm to drink, right? And so then there could be another coffee, for instance, or maybe there's a tea there or whatever. And potentially a fruit or some other sugary thing. And then they finish work, let's say five, six, seven, depending on, you know, a lot of things. They might actually head then to the gym and then after the gym they go home, they have dinner, it's 8, 8.30, 9 and then by then they might be very, very hungry, some of them might be, yeah, which means that they would have a big and comfortable meal, then watch some Netflix and here we go again. We're around midnight when they go to bed. Now if this person is experiencing different kinds of symptoms where it feels as if they're just not performing or feeling great. Performing, I'm talking about just how they go about with their daily life or performing maybe at work or maybe even their physical health and they might not feel super great, might not be very happy, right? If there's things like that, what they will tend to do, of course, is they will look into how can I fix that, okay? So naturally, I've already mentioned, and if you've been listening a little bit to me, you know by now exactly what I've been saying, things like the caffeine, things like the empty calories, the sugar, the carbs, and training, and that training might be then going to the gym and doing some, you know, pushy class or something like that. All of those things serve as compensatory strategies to trying to make yourself feel better. 
so that you feel as if you're acing, right? You're, you're on top of the world. You're doing everything that you're supposed to be doing with your work, with your family, with people, and that you want to look great as well, okay? And then, you know, the whole side of looking great and then feeling great as well, that person might also be looking into, oh, maybe I need more protein, because that's been a big thing, right? Maybe I need more protein in order to stabilize my mood, right? Things like that, for instance. And the thing is, what I find really unfortunate in this, and I'm saying unfortunate because really I want to say depressing, simply because I can relate so much to it until not that long ago, really. I mean, let's say 10 years ago, 100% yes. But even over the past years, the last 10 years, I've definitely been there as well, up and down is the fact that we're so disconnected from the idea that maybe if we were living according to the law of nature, we would actually feel great, look great, perform great. I've said this before, and I know that it can sound a little bit esoteric or philosophical for some, but there's a truth in there that when you look in your garden and you see a flower, you look at a rose, that rose is so perfect, right? There's, there's no like half-assed kind of rose. There's no half potential of it. Even just go closer to ourselves. When a baby is born, how often aren't the parents amazed at this little creature who's got everything, everything's perfect, right? Everything's there, everything's perfect. Well, yeah, we were born in full potential. There's no reason to be around otherwise, There's no reason for nature to exist if it isn't, you know, worked out in a really great way. Many people will also have a tendency to look into nature and be amazed by the the perfect patterns, right? Um, When you look at leaves, when you look at flowers, when you look at other things and just how they work together, that a type of plant that needs more sunshine than another, will be growing in a different place than the other. Orchids, for instance, just take how what they need has also become that this is why they would grow in the jungle on the trunks, basically, of bigger trees and bigger plants. There's nothing random around it. So why on earth would there be something random about us? I believe that when I'm saying this, You might nod and be, yeah, that's so true. And then then we don't do it anyway, right? And there's several reasons for that. Number one is we don't know, okay? We don't have the right information. And that's a huge one because, of course, functioning this way is not something that we've been taught, neither from our parents, neither in school. Unless, of course, we came from an environment where this was um, common knowledge, which isn't the biggest part of the world let's say of the world that works with consumerism which is basically most of it right so that's a huge part of course that we don't have the knowledge but there's also the part which don't trust that that's possible and we don't trust that that's possible because we have a deep down lingering disconnection from nature which means that we're feeling isolated Now, isolation creates what? It creates a survival kind of function. And a survival kind of function means that instead of actually trusting, we distrust everything. And 
mostly our own bodies. We have been taught to feel ashamed. Now, one thing that is really interesting here, I've, I was listening to, I can't remember who, we're talking about you know, religion and how it created this like shame in us, as in we were all the sinners. And so they were talking about how some countries have this more than others. And that may be true, but do not misjudge the effect of ingrained since many generations beliefs. I want to take the opportunity to mention my online program for you. It's a program dedicated to healing all kinds of typical illnesses that we find in modern days, from chronic fatigue, anxiety, digestive issues, weight gain, weight loss, insomnia, and everything in between. Now, I've put this together in a way that we assure success through three individual consultations with me, eight group sessions with a whole group, and educational material for you to digest whenever you can and want to. We work on healing whatever you want to heal, take care of whatever needs seem to be unmet in your organism, or even without trying to heal something specific, finding the perfect routine that works for you. If you are seeking to find more balance in your life, if you keep yo-yoing in how you're feeling physically, mentally, or emotionally, and never being able to really see how that stabilizes, then this program is for you. Get in touch with me, either through my website, yogisha.com, or send me directly an email, charlotte at yogisha.com, and we'll jump on a call to talk about it more. Thank you for listening. Back to the episode. So whether we're talking about countries that are actively very religious or countries that are much more secular, we still have a lot of that ingrained in our tissues. It's exactly the same thing when it comes to gender um, equality. Many of the younger generations would look at typical statements from long time ago and say, that does not concern me, but actually it does. And sometimes maybe to a certain extent, it could be even more vicious because at least certain ideas about boys and girls that were pronounced like clearly 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago are still existing in our culture, but because they've been frowned upon and seen as actually that's not true, we deny that they exist, but they're very, very present. I was born in the early 80s, 1980, and... I can promise you that the generations of the 60s and the 70s revolted against um, typical genderism and misogyny, misogyny and things like that. And even my mother was a self-proclaimed feminist and 
left-winged and what you're not. But I was still ingrained with all of these typical beliefs about what women are supposed to be, what girls are supposed to be, and what men are supposed to be. And it's not because they think it consciously, but because it goes, it's transgenerational, right? So it goes from long time ago, and then it waters out because it's less believed, but it's still deep down in the tissues. And we see this because some of the typical issues we find in young people when I say young people, I'm talking like teenagers, right? And are directly linked to these bias, these ideas about boys and girls, for instance, or race as well, of course. But they don't connect that their issues are directly coming from that. Like the way your body should look or the way men should be and that they shouldn't be emotional and things like that. There's so many of these behaviors we see, and we see it in the teenagers, we see the in the 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, and so on. And it all comes back to these deeply rooted ideas about what a woman should be and a man should be. And it's the same thing with the feeling of shame. So yeah, definitely there are countries where it feels as if we detached a lot from religion, and I'm talking about the um, three main religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam coming from kind of the same origins. But we find that as well, in um, very represented in Asia, shame is extremely represented in Asia. So this idea of being born a sinner doesn't only exist in very religious countries. So that means, what does it mean? by having a deep down belief that you are a sinner, that you're basically not good enough, well, it's shame, which means distrusting of self, which then comes all the way back to this idea that even if we had the knowledge of what it means to live with nature, we're not really sure that it really works because we don't really trust our own organism. So trusting our own own organism would therefore imply most of the time when you're feeling out of balance, when you've got any of these kind of things that I've mentioned when I started, or the fatigue, or the weight, or the digestive issues, or the chronic, you know, just conditions that people go with, what it usually means is that we need to do the complete opposite of what we're doing. And that is scary. It feels as if we're telling someone to go straight back into the burning house, the burning building. It's as if we would say to the person who is so worried about gaining weight and who is starving themselves, no, eat cake, right? Now, I would never say that, but that's what people feel like, actually, when you're telling them to do the exact opposite because it's kind of this like surrendering into the unknown and it feels as if, but I've been... You know, I've been doing this. One of the things, for instance, I mean, that took me so long before I could understand that, was the idea that you cannot exercise away a bad diet. I wasn't having a specifically bad diet per se, but I was so overdoing it in exercise that I came into this like vicious cycle that 
I was training so much and then I got so, so hungry. So I was eating far too much. It was more that, that I was eating too much. And then I would train again because then there would be this obsession about maybe I've eaten too much because somewhere you know that you've eaten too much. And then the excessive training would have me become even more hungry. But because that was the reason that I was hungry was not actually because my body really needed more nutrients, but it was linked to other things of depletion, feeling tired, low energy, needing actually maybe electrolytes more than anything, drinking more water, for instance, and then you get these cravings of sugar and salt and things like that. And then you would justify as well the fact that, well, I'm training so much, or naturally I need to eat so much, but actually, no, I didn't. And that's the case with then a lot of other things, like, for instance, a a friend of mine who's having such issues um, with PMS and even cysts, and I said to her, well, one of the, and she's, she's very thin, okay? She eats, she eats more sweet things though than anything. That's what she's very drawn to. But she's very, very thin. So that's never been even like the idea that maybe, you know, it was a question of her food. But I told her what you need to do is to stop drinking coffee. And she went, oh, no, no, no. I mean, I don't know. It, I'm not going to be able to function. So do you hear that? Someone who says, I'm not going to be able to function if I don't have my, she would have like four cup, four cups at least a day, I think. So someone who says, I can't be able to function without the coffee. See, this is where we're so twisted, right? You're supposed to be able to function without coffee. Like it's not as if the human body came like into design mm, and then we need caffeine in order to function. No, if you're not functioning without coffee, that is a sign, that is a symptom. And I just wish that my words today could be somewhat a comfort for those out there who are experiencing exactly this, right? Using these different things to keep it up, you know, but not feeling good. And that I'm telling you, you're not supposed to need them trust that it would actually work if you just let it go and then started living according to nature and there isn't a time of adjustment there for sure when I stopped having like daily coffee for instance there was a time where I noticed of course the tiredness but that's because the body's finally able to feel the symptoms so that you can recover from them it's like pretending that the wound in, it's like, yeah, okay. It's like having a shoulder pain and you keep on taking that, you know, that cream like Voltaren or whatever, um, which is like an anti-inflammatory, right? And so you keep on putting that on your shoulder so that you can just keep pushing it so that you won't feel the pain. And anyone knows that there must be something not right in that, right? Because the pain, the inflammation that you're feeling is information. So what you would need to do would be to stop using the cream, for instance, and then rest until there's no more pain, which is what I had to do with the coffee. I had to stop the coffee and then I would notice for about a week that I was tired more than usual, that I even experienced a little bit. I've never been like that bad with it, 
um, like the people who would again get like my, my, migraines and you know headaches and stuff. But I would notice like a bit of a heaviness in the in the head for a couple of days. But the thing is, once then the body been able to oh I can acknowledge these imbalances, then it can tend to it. Pain is a message. There you go. I know it's not easy, especially when we live in a world that it seems won't allow us to stop and do this. But the thing is, there is a choice. There's always a choice. Even if the people around you are living that way and it find, you find it hard to you know, not do what they're doing or living differently to your spouse or to your family. The thing is, at the end of the day, when you have come so far that this turns into something more aggravated, you're the only one who will be living with it for the rest of your life. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this podcast and this episode. I am very grateful. If you enjoyed this and you think that other people could enjoy this, please help me to spread the word. Share this episode on any channel that you have of social media or messaging. And even more so, I would really appreciate if you know one other person who might benefit from my words today specifically. Take that one minute it takes to simply share this episode with one person. Remember that there's a human being on the other side of your phone, of your earpods, of this microphone. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what I've been talking about. So please leave a comment. Send me a message directly if you wish. This is Charlotte. This is me. See you next time. Namaste.